Good morning. And let's begin class with prayer this morning. Gracious Father in heaven, we thank you for your blessings, for, for hearing our prayers, answering our prayers, for watching over us. We ask that you will continue to guide as we try to share the truth about you in the most effective way possible. Lead us as we study today that we may know you fuller. We pray in our holy name. Your holy name. Amen. Uh, announcement to make. Uh, you know, a few weeks ago, I asked our class online and here to, to pray that, that God would help us find a publisher for a new manuscript I've been working on called The God-Shaped Heart, The Transforming Power of Love. And uh, this, this week we've got three offers from three different publishers. And so now we, we plan, hopefully we'll be making a decision next week on which publisher to go with. And when we do, I'll, I'll let you know that. So God is really blessing and answering that prayer. So, and it seems like these publishers are very excited about this perspective where we're really going to unpack the difference between God as creator and design law versus this infection of imperialism that seems to hold people in fear and guilt. And then um, I got this letter, uh, email this week from Mira Huber, who is the person who edited the uh, remedy for us. She spent over a year of her life editing this uh, voluntarily and did a fantastic job through, through, through that. And she wrote... Um, I know that the remedy copies will not gather dust when they arrive here. My quoting at church from the remedy over the past 12 months has raised a bit of, quite a bit of interest, and people are even more curious when they find out that it is the newest paraphrase presenting the healing model and that I had something to do with its production. The more I read the remedy, the more the beauty of God unfolds in my mind, and together with the recordings that I listen to all the time as I go about my duties every day, they are demolishing Satan's strongholds of the imperial teaching so deeply engraved over, over the decades. My mind likes logic to be in charge. And, and that's why, since childhood, many of our church teachings simply did not sit with me. And before I learned of the design law, many of Ellen White's statements didn't make any sense either, even though I never rejected her writings. Do you know how hard it is to get rid of these old ideas? And just as hard as it is to get the new ones established in my mind, but I'm encouraged as I listen to the weekly uh, study and realize uh, that some of your regular students are also struggling a bit like myself. I'm going through the archives and listening to the older classes, uh, which are all a great source of enlightenment to me. Thank you so much for your patient teaching sessions and to the crew for making the recordings available. May you all be blessed forever. And I do want to remind everybody that the, that the New Testament paraphrase, we have some here today that are free. And if you want to take some and share with people, I've got a few cases in my car that are available to take if you'd like after class. So today we're doing lesson number 12 in the quarterly, the book of Matthew. And the title this week is Jesus' Last Days. In the first paragraph, it says, in this lesson, Jesus is now entering the final moments before the cross. The world is... Even the universe begins to face the most crucial moment in the history of creation. And you notice this is the most crucial moment, and it says not just for the earth, but for the universe. What made it the most crucial moment? Satan's true character was being revealed. Okay, so Satan's true character was being revealed. What's about to happen in this moment? It's about to alter the trajectory of mankind. Oh, the trajectory of mankind. What is the trajectory of mankind without Jesus Christ? What, what path are they on? Death. Extinction. Extinction, yeah, death, extinction. And he's about to alter that trajectory to not eternal death, but eternal life. Yeah, that's a good way to say that. Um, but in order to do this, he was about to go through what? P- painful death. Yes, he's about to die. Was, was Christ in this weekend that we're looking at in conflict in this weekend, starting with Gethsemane and through the cross? Was he in conflict? Yeah. 
With whom and with what was he in conflict? His human nature. Oh, well said. His human nature and evil forces around him too. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Was Christ suffering through this weekend? Where is the origination of the suffering? In other words, the source of his suffering. And think your answer through. He is suffering. He's going to suffer through this whole weekend. The source of the suffering, the source of the pain. Self. He's tempted by his own evil desires. So in Gethsemane, we see powerful human emotions. He's anguishing, sweating great drops of blood because he who knew no sin became sin for us. So he was tempted in every way, just like we are yet without sin, the Bible says. And so we see him having this human anguish that was, was, was agonizing and suffering so much that he breaks out in a sweat of blood. So his suffering is coming from temptation originating in a nature he assumed. This is very important because this is not what's commonly taught. And we're going to pack here a minute. What's commonly taught is he's, being su- he's suffering because law has been broken and somebody has to be punished. And God in heaven is using his power to inflict pain and suffering on his son to make him pay. This is what's commonly taught. Was Jesus battling his father crucifixion weekend? Do you know that's what's commonly taught? Jesus and the father, it says God was in the son reconciling the world to himself. If God is for us, who can be against us? The Bible teaches a a unified Godhead. Common theology teaches a divided Godhead. You'll see it here coming up in a moment. Here's some quotes, in fact. This this, uh, from several different backgrounds. I'm I'm not going to do as many as we've done in some of our presentations, but just to kind of refresh our memory. This is from Roman Catholic apologetics. What did Christ's suffering and death actually accomplish that allowed the Father to provide the human race with salvation? Scripture teaches only that Christ became a propitiation, a sin offering, or a sacrifice for sins. Essentially, this means that Christ became, because he was guiltless, sin-free, and in favor with God, could offer himself up as a means of persuading God to relent of his angry wrath against the sins of mankind. Anger against sin shows the personal side of God, for sin is a personal offense against him. God is personally offended by sin, and thus he needs to be personally appeased in order to offer a personal forgiveness. In keeping with his divine principles, his personal nature, and the magnitude of the sins of man, the only thing that God would allow to appease him was the suffering and death of the sinless representative of mankind, namely Christ. Do you like that view? Is that a unified Godhead, or is that a God who's angry? One Godhead's angry and mad, the other God loved us so much that he was willing to give his life for us and then go to his father and say, please, Father, my blood, my blood, don't be mad at them anymore. Okay, I had to, all right, you you were a great punching bag. I vented my wrath. I feel so much more relieved. Might there be a connection between that type of mentality and some branches of Christianity that emphasize the external physical suffering that Christ went through? Oh, absolutely. The nails. That's absolutely right. Etc. Etc. As opposed to that internal struggle with um... overcoming the temptations of self-centeredness. Yes, absolutely. Here's one from Evangelical Theology. It was published in Christianity Today. A group of over a hundred theologians from different evangelical churches got together and came up. It says we affirm that the atonement of Christ, by which in His obedience He offered a perfect sacrifice, propitiating the Father by paying for our sins 
and satisfying divine justice on the behalf on our behalf according to God's eternal plan is a central part of the gospel. Notice again, what is the problem here that's being fixed in this view? God's the problem and he's being fixed. Seventh-day Adventist theology. Out of the 27 fundamental beliefs, first, for a loving God to maintain his justice and righteousness, the atoning death of Jesus Christ became a moral and legal necessity. God's justice requires that sin be carried to judgment. God must therefore execute judgment on sin and thus the sinner. In this execution, now what's an execution? How does someone die in an execution? Is it a natural death in an execution? Or is it an infliction by the government? So in this execution, the Son of God took our place, the sinner's place, according to God's will. Who's the government in this setting? God. And so what's this saying? Is God killed Jesus at the cross. He executed him. This is not true. It's not biblical. But this idea infects Christianity. This is out of a, a magazine called Ministry Magazine. Why did God the Father choose the cross to be the instrument of death? Why did he not choose to have Christ instantly beheaded or quickly run through with a spear or sword? Was God unjust in executing judgment on Christ with a cross when he could have done it by beheading a noose, a sword, a gas chamber, a bolt of lightning, or lethal injection? Again, the idea that God is the one killing. And then this is out of uh, the review. And it, uh, a Christian magazine called The Review. One of the fundamental problems of the moral influence theory is that it rejects the substitutionary nature of Christ's death. The idea that God had to kill the innocent instead of the guilty in order to save us is considered a violation of justice. Wow. Did God kill Jesus on the cross? No. Those theologians who have come out against what we teach in our ministry hold to this view. And... They teach that God is, notice, God then, in this view, becomes the source of pain, suffering, and inflicted death. He's the source of these things. It would be like Satan saying, guys, guys, I never said God wasn't powerful. He's eight scores, but the problem with God, he's no good. He's, he needs anger management classes. If he could just get his anger management under control, we could, ha- we could live forever in sin because there really is nothing wrong with sin. There's something wrong with God who will torture and kill you for it. And if he would just leave us alone, we could live for eternity in sin. Sin doesn't harm us. God harms us. This is what they're teaching. They don't say these words, but that's the meaning of what they're teaching. The consequence of the problem with sin is an infliction by a ruling authority. You know, it's not what the founders of our church, of the Adventist church, taught. I'm going to read, and we're going to unpack just a few paragraphs out of a book called Desire of Ages, which was what was taught more than a hundred years ago, but somehow has been lost sight of. Who do you think killed Christ at the cross? This is what used to be taught. Satan saw that his disguise was torn away. His administration was laid open before the unfallen angels, before the heavenly universe. He had revealed himself as a murderer. By shedding the blood of the Son of God, he uprooted himself from the sympathies of heavenly beings. Henceforth, his work was restricted. What attitude he might, whatever attitude he might assume, he could no longer await the angels if they came from heavenly courts and before them accused Christ's brethren as being clothed with the garments of blackness and defilement of sin. The last length of sympathy between Satan and the heavenly world was broken. So first, who did our church used to teach killed Christ at the cross? Satan. Satan. So who do you believe killed Christ at the cross? God or Satan? And who did Jesus himself said is the murderer from the beginning? Who who did Jesus say? 
Satan is the murderer from the beginning. So Jesus says death comes out from Satan. If you have a theology that has God being the source of death, you're in contradiction to what Jesus said. So why do then so many people teach that God killed Jesus at the cross? We'll do metaphor and come to reality. Metaphor of the revelation is, because revelation says the whole world is intoxicated on the wine of the beast, fornicates with the beast, wine. Okay, what does wine do? It intoxicates it. It makes, it makes our thinking benumbed where we can't think clearly anymore. That's what wine does, okay? And this is wine, his is, is ideas. But think about this for a second. In Bible symbol, symbolism, what do beasts always represent? Government. Human governments. That's what they always represent. Every time you see a beast in Bible symbolism, it's a human government of some kind. What law do human governments operate upon? What kind of law? Imposed. Imposed law with coercive enforcement. If you don't do this, we will use power to punish you for disobedience. That's how beast systems work. Okay? God's, God is creator. He's designer. His laws are the real, laws upon which reality actually function. He makes space, time, energy matter. Okay? His laws are not these imperialistic things that require coercive enforcement. You deviate from his laws, you actually step outside of how life is built. And the wages of that is death. Okay? Yes? What about the verse, can you explain where it talks about the uh, no one taketh my life but it laid down? Sure. Sure. So when Christ says, no one can take my life from me, could they kill him if he said no? Was he helpless up on the cross like the two other thieves? No. No. He was, it says in John 13, all power in heaven and earth had been given to him. In John 13, he says this. He is the source of life. He can only die if he willingly allows it to happen. And the big temptation, this is the crux of the temptation. The crux of the temptation was, will he use power for selfish purposes. Because love is selfless. Love seeks not its own, 1 Corinthians 13. Love is giving, not taking. And so this is not suicide. Christ did not kill himself. He simply did not use power to stop what his created beings would do to him. That's, that's what's going on there. So if I, yeah, so you wanted to stop it, he could have done it. But if he stops it, who does he save? And as we unpack what's going to happen in the rest of these, of these paragraphs, and we want, to, we want to get through these, you're going to see why, there's an actual reason why he had to do it this way. Yes? We talked about Satan killing Jesus. Uh, when they enact the sunrise scene, you know, at the Gethsem- uh, in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus is praying and pleading, you know, to God, <clears throat> and then Satan comes out and tries to tell him, why don't you give up on the idea of dying? You know, look at these people. They're going to forsake you. They're, why, why would you die for people like that? So it gives the impression that Satan did not want Jesus to die. So which is it? Did he want him to die or not? You know, he, he wanted to defeat his mission. That's what he wanted him to do. And he wanted him to use power selfishly. Yes, he would like him to die, but he wants him to die after he uses his power selfishly. Isn't there a passage that suggests that Satan tempted Christ to continue his mission? Yes. And not go on right. at that exact time? And right. One of the subtle temptations was to, you know, you're going to leave your mission to these clowns that are sleeping over here? You, you, you've got more work to do. So it was the temptation to distrust the Father's plan. Right. Temp- to do it his own way, to go his own way. So, so part of it was not that he didn't want him to die, but he wanted him to do his own thing and act self-centeredly, be selfish. And if you notice the temptations through... Um, 
the, the uh, Gospels, you'll notice every time that weekend after he's on trial, they say, he saved others, save yourself, come down off the cross, save yourself, we'll worship you. That temptation over and over again comes to him, save yourself, save yourself. Now that's a, that's a crazy temptation for the other two thieves. The two thieves on the cross beside him, not that Christ was a thief, the other two on the cross with him. Okay? Um, they couldn't have done it. Save yourself, impossible. Christ, was it impossible for him to save himself or could he have done it? He had the power. Yes. And we, I really want to move on, so let me get... Yes. One quick tie. If you go back to Zechariah's prophecy in Zechariah 13, and it says, Then uh, And one will say unto him, Where are the wounds in thy hands? And he shall answer, Those are the wounds which are... I was wounded in the house of my friends. And it says, Awake, O shepherd, against my shepherd. Awake, O sword, against my shepherd. And against the man, this is my fellow, saith the Lord of hosts. Smite the shepherd, and the sheep will be scattered. And I will turn my hand upon the little ones. I appreciate your version, uh, your paraphrase, actually translates it as much better good than the Matthew account. All the translations add, I will, and even some say God will. And it's not in the Hebrew there, and it's not in the Greek. So thanks for doing a good job in your, in your paraphrase. So, so let's, let's move on now. When churches act coercively, when Christians act coercively, put people to stake, believe this way or it will kill you. Uh, throughout history, this has happened. Northern Ireland, this has happened more recently. When people act coercively in the name of Christ, shoot abortion doctors because you think they're, they're doing When you act, you're acting beastly. This is the way the beasts work. Coercive power. So, I read that, that quotation earlier that ended the last link of sympathy that Satan saw disguise was torn away. The very next paragraph, I want to continue and unpack this now. Yet Satan was not then, and this is, by the way, in page 761 in the book of the Star of Ages. Yet Satan was not then destroyed. The angels did not even then understand all that was involved in the great controversy. The principles at stake were to be more fully revealed. Principles. What are principles? Laws. Laws. What kind of laws? Can anybody design laws? Can anybody give me an example of a principle? A design law. Gravity. Gravity. Okay, there's a design law, how things are actually built. So how God built life to work has not yet been fully understood. Even angels in heaven didn't fully. Remember, Peter writes in Peter. Angels long to look into these things. They're, they're trying to figure it out. Paul, uh, Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 4.9, we are a spectacle, a theater to angels and men. Okay? So this idea that angels are trying to learn something is very biblical. But the principles, the big ones, the principle of love, the principle of beneficence, giving, how life is constructed, every breath you take, you give away carbon dioxide to plants, the plants give back oxygen to you, a never-ending circle of giving, the law of love built right into nature. This has not been fully established, hadn't been fully seen and understood how it, it enters every phase of our life, so forth. Love, truth, freedom, God's principles versus selfishness, lies, and coercion. Satan's principles, they're at war. Two antagonistic principles. Okay. And for the sake of man, and for the sake of man, Satan's existence must be continued. Man as well as angels must see the contrast between the prince of light and the prince of darkness. He must choose whom he will serve. Why? Why must you choose? There's a reason. What is it that God wants? What's his end game? What's he trying to achieve with humanity? What's he want for you? What's his goal? Some will say salvation. What is that? Reconciliation. Reconciliation. What does that look like? What's he actually wanting to happen 
And restoration back to the original design. Okay, I like all that. I like all that. Which means he wants from you absolute love, trust, loyalty, devotion to him. Right? Okay, that's what he wants. Can he get that by exercising might and power and threats? You can't get it. That's why it says in Zechariah 4, 6, not by might nor by power, but by the way the Spirit works, says the Lord. And the Spirit is the Spirit of truth and love. So the only way God can get his end game, which is our loyalty, one back to him completely beyond shaking, is to present the truth and love and leave us free so that we choose, we think it through, we weigh it out, we understand it, we choose it. That's the only way to uh, to preserve each of our unique personality, individuality, identities. If he were to use divine power to simply impose those ways of thinking upon a person, it would destroy their, their individuality. They'd become a robot. So he presents truth and love and leaves us free. It's the only way. Each person must choose. In the opening, now let's, in the opening of the great controversy, Satan had declared that the law of God could not be obeyed. That justice was inconsistent with mercy, and that should the law be broken, it would be possible, impossible for the sinner to be pardoned. Every sin must meet its punishment, urged Satan. Who is the source of the idea that sin must be punished by God? Satan. This is Satan's idea. Why? Because Satan declares that God is no different than created beings, only more powerful. That God's laws are merely rules he enforces with threats. That God is not truly our creator and sustainer. That his laws are just imperialistic. This is what Satan declares. How many churches teach God is this just like this? He declared this before creation. I mean, before creation of birth. If, yes, before yet. Thank you. If our understanding of the timeline is correct, he, he declared this to the angels in heaven in order to... Every sin must meet its punishment, urged Satan. And if God should remit the punishment of sin, he would not be a God of truth and justice. This is Satan's argument. I have heard it preached in pretty much every denominational church in America, that if God doesn't punish sin, if there's no hell to punish sin, then there's no justice and and God's government's a fraud. But this is Satan who's saying this is a lie. It's all false. Don't you think that people uh, support that belief by the Old Testament and how God, I'm coming out with my punishing sword. I'm, you know, going to punish the sinners, the evildoers, and so on. They they look to that as a, as a reason why they believe that. They have a false law lens, and then they go to the Old Testament and misinterpret and misapply the Old Testament. So they will use that as fodder for sure, but it's the old, it's not in the Old Testament. The Old Testament does not teach this. It is their false law lens as they read the Old Testament that comes up with this. Back to the question, though. If this is true, if God must punish sin, and justice requires that he do so, then if Jesus is our substitute at the cross, which he was, who punished Jesus at the cross? This is, see? So all these, when I just read from all of these theology, including Adventist theology, they are teaching Satan's view of reality. I hope that gave you some chills. It's, it's not, it's, this is, and, and doesn't mean they're necessarily lost people to do that. Remember, Jesus said to Peter, Get ye behind me, Satan. Satan's theology was trying to come through Peter to Jesus, but Peter was not cast off and Peter was not lost. 
But he had to give up that idea. He had to change his thinking. We need to give up these distortions. Keep on with the quote. When a man broke the law of God and defied his will, Satan exalted. It was proved he declared that the law of God could not be obeyed. Man could not be forgiven. Because he, after his rebellion, had been banished from heaven, Satan claimed that the human race must be forever shut out of God's favor. God could not be just, he urged, and yet show mercy to the sinner. True or not true? Can God be just and show mercy? Absolutely. No. It's the only way. Oh, I love that. Oh, that's, that's brilliant. Let's, let's unpack that. Okay, says, and we will in, in this paragraph. Now listen to this. But even as a sinner, man was in a different position from that of Satan. Lucifer in heaven had sinned in the light of God's glory. To him, as to no other created being, was given a revelation of God's love. Understanding the character of God, knowing his goodness, Satan chose to follow his own selfish, independent will. This choice was final. Pause. Why was this choice final? Was it because God was unwilling to forgive Satan. Is that why? God wouldn't forgive him. No. There was no additional light. Was it because justice required sin be punished, that Satan had to be punished, he had to be held accountable? Was it because Jesus was unwilling to pay the legal penalty for Satan? He wouldn't die for Satan. Jesus wouldn't give his life for him. No. It's what Romans describes as the wrath of God. So somebody was about to say it. Go ahead and say it now. There was no additional light or truth that could be shown to him to reach him if he had seen the full unveiled glory. Let's put the pieces together. What is biblical definition of sin? Sin is? Lawlessness. Lawlessness, transgression of the law. And what is the law? The law of love, right? The law of love, that's right. And what is life built or constructed upon? So when you transgress the law, you take yourself, and where is its source? Where is the source of all this? In God, that's right. So Satan came to believe God himself to be untrustworthy after having seen the foolish revelation of God's true character of love that any created being had ever seen in all universal history. He rejects God's character of love, says God is not like this. There was no more truth that he hadn't already processed and rejected left to be presented to him to dispel the lies now operating inside him. There's nothing more God could do to reach him. And thus, I'm continuing with the quote now. Oh, in fact, I'm going to tell you a story before I continue with the quote. Russell can testify to this because he was there. Six years ago, Russell, I, and one other person, maybe you all remember Jim Luke, um, used to live around here and was part of our class at that time. We all were in a meeting with uh, some of the pastors over here in one of the local churches. And one of the pastors ha- had concerns, and he said, you know, one of my concerns about your ministry, Tim is that I'm afraid that what you teach leads people out of the church. And I, and I didn't get offended. I said, you know what? That's a very fair concern. You have a hypothesis. You have a concern. Are you willing to test your hypothesis against the evidence? Now, unbeknownst to me, Jim and, and Russell were in, I had a history that I didn't fully understand. And, and Jim pipe, pipes up and says, you know, I, used to, I was raised in Adventist church. I went to Adventist schools. I used to be an Adventist pastor, and I became disillusioned. I left the church. Left, I left my ministry, left the church, doing business, worldly things. Somebody brought me to Tim's class. I'm back in the church now. And Russell. Same story. Same story. Raised in the church. Left church. Back in the church now after coming to the class and hearing this message. So here I had... They both told their testimony to this pastor. I said, you've got two people that just gave a testimony, evidence that, in fact, the class has brought people back to the church. Are you, I said, I can let you talk to my entire class membership. When I'm not even in the room, you can test your hypothesis against the evidence and, and, and then 
come to your own conclusion. Are you willing to do that? He said, no, I just believe you lead people out of the church. (laughs) That was it. That's a true story. Russell was there. What do you do when you're dealing with a mind who refuses to look at the evidence? This is what's happening here. This is what would lose Satan's position. He had shut his mind. He'd concluded that there's no truth there, that, that that's not right, and, and there's nothing more that can be done to reach until the mind changes. And Satan sang the doxology. <laughs> I'm sure he could sing it, but would he mean it in his heart? <laughs> so continuing on with the quote, there was no more God could do to save him, save Satan. But man was deceived. His mind was darkened by Satan's sophistry, the height and the depth of the love of God he did not know. So right now, pause. How is man in sin, his position, different than the position of Satan in sin? What's the big difference? Satan did know the height and depth of God's love. So what was not available to reach Satan? What was no longer available to reach Satan? And he knew light, a revelation to dispel light because he'd already rejected the light and there was no more new light. He's already settled on light. But man, even though they're in rebellion against God, didn't fully understand the truth about God's character. There's much, much more truth and revelation about God's character that can dispel the lies that Adam and Eve believed and win them back to trust. I agree that premise, but it's neat. We're going to study this for forever. And I think God did take it to new levels of light, but it's still love. You know, God never had to change direction because the way he was willing to sacrifice himself if need be, what happened in the incarnation, what happened on the cross, there is new light, but I was to Satan, he didn't want more light. So he'd, he'd become immune to any new light. Yeah. You know, I don't know that there, once you actually understand the core methodology and operational dynamics of how love works and God's character of love, you may see it presented in new places. You've never seen it presented before, but it's not a new methodology or a new way of doing things. Yeah. So what do you think there's hope for man then? If you understand the difference and what is the concern, and if you want Bible text for this stuff, it's all over the Bible. Darkness covered the people, gross darkness the people. Jesus is a light which lightens all men. He's a light that comes into the world. Light about what? This is life eternal, that you might have your sins legally pardoned and your debt paid by the blood of Jesus. Is that what it says in, in, is that what Jesus said in John 7? No, this is life eternal, that they might know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ is now a sin. Corinthians 10 through, through 5, though we live in the world, we don't wage war as the world does. The weapons we fight with are not worldly. They have divine power to demolish strongholds. We demolish every argument and pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God and take captive every thought. God is the, Romans 1, they didn't think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie. And Paul says, therefore, their minds became darkened, depraved, and futile. Why? Because they rejected the knowledge of God. The Bible is giving the same message, old and new. This is what this author is writing here, but expanding it to a cosmic. The angels also were duped, and Satan rejected the knowledge of God, and that's why he fell. So where do you think hope for man was? Understanding this difference. Here's what, what this author says. For man, there was hope in a knowledge of God's love. By beholding his character, he might be drawn back to God. Through Jesus, God's mercy was manifested to men, but mercy does not set aside justice. Let's talk about justice. What is justice? What is justice? See, which law lens are you looking through? You're looking through imposed law lens? 
courtroom here, judge is sitting up here, justice is, we, whether we bring our enemies to justice or justice to our enemies, justice will be done, George Bush, 2001. Is justice a human concept of imposed law? We must, punishment, every sin must meet its punishment. That's human justice. We must punish sin. If we don't punish, and you watch it in all the crime shows on TV all the time, and somebody's been a victim, they come to the, the family of the, victim, of the person who's been murdered, Anything you share with us may help us find them and bring them to justice. Over and over again, we get this idea in our head. And what is justice in this model? Punishing, punishing, punishing. So when you read this, do you read, but mercy does not set aside justice, which is what those who oppose what we teach, teach. Yes, God's merciful, but justice still to be served. And so those quotes I read, Jesus had to come and God had to punish Jesus so we could solve justice. Is that what you understand justice to be? Yes. You know, in the mission story, at the end of this lesson, it was really powerful because it talked about uh, a tragic murder of two teens, and the details were a little fuzzy. I think one or both parents were killed, and the surviving brother had an amazing... And the whole town was upset. It's like, you find this guy, hang him in the spot. And the brothers cry out, was like, you know, hey, this guy's got to be miserable. And, you know, he was, he was praying for healthy restoration. If this guy was caught, hopefully the guy would get converted, as that previous story told about the one son who helped line arranged the murder of his whole family, but finally did come to know Jesus. So where you're going with this, justice in God's... See, justice is doing what's right. The right thing, the just thing, the right thing. And what determines what's right or not, remember, is the law. And in God's universe, what is the law? The law of love, the protocols upon how which reality is built. So justice, or doing the just thing, is setting things that are wrong right. Making it right, putting it right establishing it in rightness, rightifying it, or justifying it, or being justified. So if you have a Word document on your computer, and the margins are all like this, and you want to make them all straight, there's a command up there. What's that command called? Justify. When you justify your margin, you're setting them right. You're putting them in line. That's exactly right. When a bone is disjointed from its joint, and you realign it, are you doing the right thing? A merciful thing? So it was the merciful thing and the right thing. In other words, you're justifying the bone. You're setting it right. That's what justification is. And that is the merciful thing. It is always merciful to justify, which is the right thing. That's why their mercy and justice are the same. Yes. Well, I remember when you first brought up, and it was a, it was a light to my mind when you brought up that what is justice for a murdered person? It's to give their life back. That's right. So remember the Newtown shooting we gave the example of. If you were one of the parents of those kids who was murdered in Newtown, which would you prefer, hunting down and punishing the killer had they survived, or resurrecting and restoring your children? <laughs> Read that God's justice is setting it right. He will restore us in the end. Yes? You know, it's amazing he illustrated, I guess in a movie called Tip of the Spear, but of the missionaries down in South America, the one who had the phrase, you know, he is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to keep what he cannot lose. And that man was murdered by the natives they were trying to witness. And they had weapons that could have defended themselves, at least for a while. They chose not to. But the amazing story is that how the wives and children eventually moved down there. And one of the murders, almost like the godfather to some of the children. You know, that person converted. And we look in the Bible, and most of us have uncles or family named David. And he was a murderer, but he converted ultimately. And same for Saul of Tarsus. He became Paul. So that's true justice, that these murders become redeemers. Done. They become healed set right. Their hearts are transformed. As it says in Corinthians that he takes his enemies and turns them into friends. Yeah, that's exactly right. So 
Continuing on with the quote, the law reveals the attributes of God's character and not a jot or tittle of it could be changed to meet man in his fallen condition. Pause. Why could God not change his law to meet us in our fallen condition? Why? Because if you understand design law, it would be like saying a person drowning, the law of respiration cannot be changed to meet the person underwater. They still have to breathe. Okay. That's, That's all it's saying. That's what it means. And further, if God were to change his law, if you understand his law, or the, all the laws upon which the entire universe is operating, to change them would be destroy the universe as we know it. Life as we know it would not exist if the laws upon which all of it operate were changed. Physics, thermodynamics, gravity, relationships, all of it. There's laws, protocols, construction of how it's built. If you change that, it collapses. Life doesn't exist. This universe ceases to be. It cannot be changed. God did not change his law, but he sacrificed himself in Christ for man's redemption. God was in Christ, reconciled the world to himself, which means what? What was happening there? What was Christ achieving? Reconciling the world to himself. If he's reconciling the world to himself, who's being changed here in this process? So when we read those quotes earlier from the common theologies across the landscape of Christianity, Christ's death was designed to, do, to change who in those theologies? God. But the Bible says God was in the Son reconciling the world to himself. And so you ask the question, when man sinned in Eden, did God get changed? Did God's law get changed? Did the nature of humankind get changed? Did Adam himself get changed? Yes. And so whatever, however you describe what Christ is doing, the effect has to be in sinful man to change sinful man back into harmony with God. God doesn't need changing. He's perfect. God's law doesn't need fixing. It's perfect. Man, though, is not perfect. Man needs fixing, changing. And so very next sentence. The law requires righteousness, a righteous life, a perfect character. But this man has not to give. He cannot meet the claims of God's holy law. But Christ, coming to earth as man, lived a holy life and developed a perfect character. Paul's right there. Perfect angel, he developed a perfect angelic character, a perfect divine character, a perfect character of some planet out in the universe that we don't even know what those beings are, or a perfect human character. It was a perfect human character. These he offers as a free gift to all who will receive him. Remember why the law can't be changed? It's the same reason the law requires a righteous life. It'd be like saying, the law requires you to breathe. Why does the law require you? It's so restrictive. I shouldn't have to breathe if I don't want to. I mean, come on. It's a requirement you breathe if you want to live. It's a requirement you have a character like Christ if you want to live in God's kingdom. Because that's how life is built. It's a requirement. It's simple. His life stands for the life of men. Thus they have remission of sins that are passed through the forbearance of God. Remission of sins through what? There's no payment here. More than this, Christ imbues men with the attributes of God. He builds up the human character after the similitude of the divine character, a goodly fabric of spiritual strength and beauty. What are you, what's happening here? Humankind is being, and is there biblical text to support this? I will take out the heart of stone, put in a heart of flesh, circumcision of the heart by the spirit. We get the mind of Christ. We are reborn, recreated in the inner man. The old is dead. The new is come. We have uh, the law written on the heart and mind. All the metaphors of scripture are teaching a literal transformation, renewal. So it's no longer I that live, but Christ lives in me. That's what scripture is teaching. It's real. Yes. And just a little like an Old Testament 
uh, quote along those lines is in Isaiah 1, starting with uh, verse 24. Uh, this is what the mighty one of Israel declares. Uh, I will get relief from my foes and avenge myself on my enemies. I will turn my hand against you. I will thoroughly purge away your dross and remove all your impurities. I love that. Notice what the vengeance of God is. It is. It would be like the vengeance of a doctor with a patient with with a, with an infection. And what does the doctor destroy with the patient and the infection? He destroys the patient or he destroys the infection? And saves the patient. That's what he's saying. I will get my vengeance by destroying the dross and getting rid of your impurities. I will take away the sinful, selfish, fear-based heart and give you a new heart and right spirit. That's what God's going to do. He's not going to kill us if we let him. I've got to go move on. got to move on. Thus, the very righteousness of the law is fulfilled in the believer in Christ. God can be just and the justifier of him that believes. In this view, what is the just thing? Setting right. Setting right the hearts of sinners. That's the just thing. Fixing what's broken in us. That's beautiful. This is the gospel. This is the truth of God, about God as revealed by Christ. This is what was pending 2,000 years ago. This is what was before Jesus. Jesus understood his mission. And this is why he told Peter to put away a sword. That he had a mission to complete. He had to fix what was broken in the species human. Thus, in summary, what Christ achieved, very quickly, the revelation of the truth about God, destroying lies and winning to trust. Expose Satan as a liar and fraud. Thus, as it says, disarming his powers, it says in, in the New Testament. Destroying the infection of selfishness, the, the human temptation to survive that he struggled with in Gethsemane. He destroyed that and put God's love back in the species human. He destroyed death and brought life and immortality to light, it says in Timothy. He secured the unfallen universe, it says in Colossians, that all things in heaven and earth are reconciled to Christ at the cross. He established God's laws, methods, and government as trustworthy and reliable in the minds of unfallen beings. And he, this is a big one. He exposed that religious people who keep all the right rituals and practices that God himself established when they accept the false law construct become his enemies. That's the, the, the Jewish people. All the, all the rituals and all the practice given by God practiced under the imposed law construct actually operate in opposition to God's kingdom. And that was exposed. Sunday's lesson. The last, uh, last uh, sentence of the first paragraph says, looking back with the entirety of Scripture at our disposal, and especially Paul's powerful explanation of the atoning death of Jesus, we know so much more about what Jesus was doing for us than the followers did at, his, at that time. I think it's true we should know more, and I think we have unpacked more. But what about those quotes I read earlier? Do you think those quotes represent a deeper knowledge of what Christ achieved? In fact, there's a lot of theories about the atonement out there. And we get accused of having a very narrow view because we teach a healing view. And, and those who, who, like other views, will say that the Bible has rich, rich metaphor and display of many, many different theories of atonement. And, and we like to teach all of those theories. Remember this. Metaphor is only metaphor as long as there's some cosmic reality to which it's directly linked in teaching. If there's no reality to which it's teaching, the metaphor is not metaphor, it's fantasy. Number one. Number two, I'm going to ask you this question. Do you think actual healing, transformation, and renewal of your heart to be like Jesus in character is metaphor or is that reality? 
And so when they say that we're teaching metaphor, they're denying reality. They're obscuring what God is trying to do. But let's look at some of them very quickly. How about this one? God is offended. And we read this earlier in one of the quotes. God's offended and the only thing that would uh, take care of his personal offense, because sin is personally offensive to God and he must be personally appeased. Remember this? We read that earlier. God is offended and his honor must be satisfied. This is the satisfaction theory of atonement. This is level one of moral development. Level one moral development, satisfaction theory of atonement. There's another one. Satan had a legitimate claim to earth and the lives of humans, so Jesus makes a deal with Satan to exchange his life for the life of mankind. This is the ransom theory of atonement. Level two, moral development. God must punish sin in order to show his government doesn't play favorites. This is the governmental theory of atonement. Level three thinking. Law, the law itself cannot be changed, and, lo- and every, every breach of the law requires that it must be punished. Sin must be punished, so God had to inflict the punishment to keep and maintain the law. This is the penal substitutionary view of atonement. This is level four thinking. God loved us too much to let us go, and Christ came as the means to win us back with love. This is the moral influence theory of atonement. This is level five. God built his universe to operate in harmony with his own nature of love, and there are certain protocols by which life exists. Deviations from them are, are destructive, and humankind is now out of harmony with God's design, terminal, dead in trespass and sin. Christ died to restore the human species back to harmony with God and his design. This is both the recapitulation theory and the Christus Victor theory of atonement. What's level six? Moral development. And level seven, not only understands we had to be one with love and God had to fix what was broken, but God had a broader and deeper purpose than just the salvation of humankind, that he was solidifying his entire universe. All things in heaven and earth are reconciled to Christ at the cross through what Christ was achieving and understanding the larger purpose, level seven, the healing model of atonement. Amen. The first four levels, if you'll notice, are all false, and they're all based on ideas that incite fear. And all these ideas are based on those first four levels. Sin must be punished. God, in order to be just, must inflict pain, suffering, and death. God is the source of suffering and death. God killed Jesus at the cross. God is the one we need to be protected from. Sin isn't the problem. The problem is God, what God will do to you if you sin. Those are the first four levels. One other thought about this, and it's a sad observation. Normal, and I went through this, the, the seven levels of moral decision-making just now, very quickly. We have a much longer and deeper explanation of that in our DVD uh, out there that from, from fear to friendship, growing in the seven steps with God. But one of the realities of how the human being develops is that you can't skip levels. You can't go from level two to level six, from level four to level seven. You actually have to comprehend the level above you, assimilate it before you can go on to the next level. And in fact, most people cannot comprehend, truly understand in a thoughtful and meaningful way, one level beyond the level they're currently operating at. This, this, I had an epiphany this week when I realized that for the last six years, uh, those who hold to that level four way of thinking, uh, you'll see across the landscape, if you, were, if you guys are reading wide some of the critiques of what we teach here, you'll find that they consistently come back and say that I teach moral influence theory. Moral influence theory. That's level five, level five understanding of atonement. In that quote from the review, the quote from the review said this is one of the problems of the moral influence theory. They deny the substitutionary nature of Christ's death, namely that God had to kill the innocent in place of the guilty. 
to satisfy justice. That was in the review. Because the person who wrote that is operating level four. When you're operating level four, law and order, you can only comprehend one level above you. And so they see everything that's not what they're teaching as moral influence theory. And they keep attacking moral influence theory. Because, and, and, here's, and here's the sad part of it. They don't see it as something to grow into. They see it as something flawed that denies an objective piece that needs to be there. And thus they reject the moral influence theory, which has closed them off to further advancement and development. They can't grow. They can't grow to six. They can't go to seven. They're stuck because they have denied an advanced knowledge of truth. They're not moving forward in the light. Yes. Tim, that's a great point. And the question I have is, do you have a resource or plan to create one um, that would take people through that stuff? Say, you know, that yes, my next book called The, the God-Shaped Heart. Because so many of you take you know, your stuff and you read it and you're thinking, yes. well, people see this? My next book, The God-Shaped Heart, The Transforming Power of Love which is already written, and we're going to sign a contract with the publisher this week. We'll be out in 2017 sometime, so next year. Um, but does that make sense to you? This is the same position Lucifer's in we read about. There was nothing more God could do for him because he rejected the truth. What does it say in Thessalonians? That the, 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 the wicked are lost because they did not love the truth and thus be saved. When we come to a position where we close our mind to advancing light, advancing truth, then we can't continue to grow and heal. And until that, that changes, until they're willing to move forward and reevaluate. And what causes people to reevaluate a position they're currently locked into? The Bible says we rejoice and celebrate in our trials and tribulations because they build character. What does that mean? It means that we, life experiences will often put us in a position where our current level of understanding does not answer it. It doesn't fit. I, I, I paid my tithe. I, I kept every Sabbath. I ate only the right foods, and yet this bad thing has happened. How can this be? I pay my tithes and I'm going bankrupt. How can that be? It's not supposed to work this way. I check the box, I'm supposed to get more money. So those realities cause people to step back. There must be some other explanation to rethink and find a new understanding. Some instead go, well, it's ridiculous. I quit. I, I don't want anything to do with God. It was all farce. It doesn't work. That's what some do when those challenges come. We need to offer a better understanding of reality. And we have a better understanding, don't we? Yes, over here. So, give your explanation then of how we determine what is truly truth. Yeah, I, I, we offer the integrative evidence-based approach. The approach that integrates scripture, science, and experience, showing that all three must come to the same conclusion when there's evidence available from all three. Some, something there's not evidence of all three on, but, but, there, but there is for most things. Most of the major things we teach is evidence for all three if you understand how reality works. And so our scripture understanding has to be in harmony with testable laws like the law of love and how that actually works in reality. And if you have doctrines that have God violating his own design protocols, like I love you, all I want is your love. But if you don't love me, I'm forced to use power to inflict pain, suffering, and death upon you. That's actually a violation of the law of liberty. And if you violate the law of liberty, love is destroyed. Try it in any relationship. Try it on your spouse. Love me or I'm going to kill you. You immediately get that, oh, no, I couldn't work. Okay? Because it's actually out of harmony with construction, how it's designed. And so when you get a certain idea, we want to have, have it internally consistent throughout Scripture, but it also has to be harmonized with various ways God's nature and character actually operate in the real world. And Jesus used this method all the time. So he would teach from scripture, and we give examples in nature and real life experiences all the time, showing how they all connected. It seems that everybody, especially if, if you've grown up in a church or if you've grown up with 
Christian education or religious education, you you have been led to believe that you must be right, that somehow your thinking must be perfect. And so, in my mind, subconsciously, that, that leads to an arrogance that you, you may not overtly project on people, but there's an undercurrent of arrogance. And what I see in a lot of our leaders, if you will, is that somehow they are condescending to the idea that we may be, we may have a bigger point than what they So, Scripture, man looks on the outward appearance, God looks on the heart. Performance is what? Rules are what? Outward appearance. The heart is all about the woman. Thus, Rahab lies. Her performance is to lie, to deceive, to bear a false witness. That's her performance. Prostitute. And a prostitute. Where's her heart? Her heart is for God. My heart's on his side. I'm helping. I'm choosing him. Her heart is right with God. Her performance is not yet matured. She has a mature performance, but her heart is heading now in the right direction. This is the big difference. Okay? So let, let, me, let me move on to Monday's lesson because I think there's one more point I want to I get to. It's talking about Jesus and, um, and the new covenant, pointing to them to the symbols of, of, symbols of the uh, communion, the, the bread and the wine. And it says in there that... Um, Let's see, Jesus is pointing them to a deeper meaning of the Passover, um, to the real reason for these, these types of things, that, that the, uh, the bread represents his flesh and the wine his blood. Now, did they just point to the real meaning? No, no flesh and blood is another metaphor. It's another, but if we don't look past metaphors, we can get into some real crazy thinking. Some actually think the bread and wine it points to the literal, literal human flesh and human blood of Jesus. Red corpuscles and human flesh. In 831 AD, 831 AD, Frankish abbot Pascasius Radbertus released a paper entitled De Corpore and Sanguine Christi um, concerning Christ's body and blood. According to former Secretary of Education and historian William Bennett, and I quote from his book, Raspertus concluded that since God is truth and cannot lie, Jesus' declaration that the elements of the bread and wine used in the communion were his body and blood must be taken literally. For Raspertus, the consecration of the elements mystically transformed the bread and wine into the physical body and blood of Jesus Christ. And his paper spread throughout Christianity and became part of Catholic doctrine known as transubstantiation. And in Catholic teaching, when someone partakes of the wafer, it actually transforms itself into actual physical blood of Jesus, I mean, uh, flesh of Jesus, cannibalism. For over 800 years, however, for over 800 years in Christianity, not one person, apostle, prophet, pope, or peasant, believed such an idea. For over 800 years, not one person believed it. But in the mid-9th century, this single abbot came forward reading the Bible in concrete operations, meaning that he was thinking through a lens in which he could not abstract from metaphor and symbol to reality, and he took literally Jesus' words, and from his paper, millions have been believing and failing to abstract to see reality. This is literalistic thinking. It doesn't mean uneducated. The highest educated people in Christ's day, the Sanhedrin, did the same thing in John 6 when Jesus said, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no part with me. And they became very offended at that. 
They wouldn't abstract. They wouldn't think through the meaning. I want you to think through the meaning. Bread and flesh represent the living word. Jesus says the word became flesh and dwelt among us, the living word. And just as when you eat food, the molecules of that food get broken down and assimilated into your actual body, giving nurturance and structure to your body. When we partake of the living word, the actual concepts, truths, ideas become the building blocks of our concepts, ideas, beliefs, constructs, schemas in the way we see the world around us, the framework of our own identity, individuality, and character. That's what happens. And we're, the lies are dispelled. We build an internal uh, way of seeing reality through a lens that's much more clear when we partake of the living word, ingesting it into our, our minds. And once we are, take that living word in and ingest that and build the truth about who God is, that wins us to trust. And when we want to trust, we open the heart and we invite in the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit takes all that Christ has achieved and reproduces it in us. And remember it says the life is in the blood? Thus we become partakers of the divine nature. His life is reproduced in So partaking of the blood is by internalizing the life of Christ through the dwelling spirit. It's a real internalization so that we have new heart and motives. We love God and love others more than ourselves. We're living his life. It's really profound. We have to move past the symbolisms though. And I just read that because I wanted you to see how when we have concrete operations, we can come up with superstitious thinking. Magical thinking. Thinking that's nonsensical. Thinking that scientists and thinking people shoot down. People have taken this transubstantiation idea and they said, okay, go to your, your Catholic Mass, take your Eucharist, come over here, and we're going to do an endoscopic exam and send an endoscope down and we're going to look at what's in your stomach. Guess what? There's no human flesh there. It's still, there's still wafers and, and flour and sugar. What do you, you guys are crazy people. See, that's a truth that we can test with science, right? It's not, not a truth, but an idea that we can test and we say, okay, that understanding of what Christ meant has to be wrong. Doesn't mean what Christ said is wrong, but he was speaking in symbolism. We need to understand the reality. Well, there's a lot more in the notes. I think we got about halfway through, but we're out of time. Or if you could give us some current application on, on assessing where we are moral morally developed and the friends and colleagues that we come into contact with. I mean, it's second nature for you because this is basically what you do is for a living. You, you assess the, the patients that you encounter, you assess their moral development, you have a good understanding of where you are, and, and then you have strategies to apply that. I know, you know, with 90 seconds left is probably not a rational endeavor, but, you know, it's... It's an important thing for us to consider. We, we, need to, we need to understand where we are, and then we need to understand where our audience is. Because if, if we're at a level six, we're talking to level two, it's going to be a quantum leap to get them to level four. Right. right. And, and the, way you, the way you help people, and rather than doing the assessment piece, we'll do the how do you help people piece. And how you help people piece is you ask questions that cause cognitive dissonance. You present things to them out of Scripture, some, some, some source of authority, either reality in their life, their own family, their own life experiences, if you know it, out of Scripture, if they value Scripture, that actually contradict their actual framework. It doesn't make sense. I love the one for the level four law and order one. When was sexual relations with, between David and Bathsheba no longer sin for David? For the law and order person, there is no right answer. They cannot answer that question. That, that question just completely shatters law and order. If they say, well, when you married her, are, are we saying human customs supersede God's law? So if I move to Saudi Arabia today, where it's legal in that, in that culture to have multiple wives, I can have a second wife and it's not sin? 
Oh, no, that wouldn't work. I mean, you, you just can shatter them. And you have to come back to healing model. And you understand healing model is, and the answer, I'll leave that one with you. If you don't know the answer, work on that answer this week. <laughs> Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that you have created us in your image and your universe to operate in harmony with your character, truth, love, and freedom. And that your, your, your vision, your goal is to heal a people back into harmony with your design so that the new heaven and the earth will be populated by people who love others more than self, a safe and secure place where everybody loves everyone else as much as you love us. We know that we cannot get there in our own strength. So we surrender our hearts to you now. You have presented enough tr- truth that we, we trust you, Lord, and we ask your spirit, we'll take what Christ is, you reproduce it in us. So no longer I live, but Christ lives in me. Empower us to share this message with others that you might come soon. We pray in your holy name. Amen. <laughs>